Okay. Let's open up to Revelation 17. It's my personal opinion, kids, you don't need to be getting up between singing and preaching to go to the bathroom. All right, I've talked about this before. You need to use the restroom before church starts. Okay, we're still in church. It's not like we're taking a break or an intermission. So kids, use the bathroom before church starts. When I was a kid, I wouldn't even think about getting up and leaving the sanctuary to go to the bathroom. So there's no reason why you should have to get up between the singing and the preaching. That's just my opinion. So keep that in mind, please. It makes it slow for us to get started. Adults are a different thing. We have different... uh, Our pipes are a little different by the time we get... So (laughs) I don't need to explain that. All right. uh, We're going to get into the text today. Last week I introduced these two chapters um, that are... That can be difficult to understand. It is biblical prophecy. And when we compare it to other prophecy, we know that when God says He's going to do something, it's not always as it seems, but it's always as it's written. And so I want to preface any discussion we have of these Babylons we see in 17 and 18 with that confidence. Chapter 17 and chapter 18 are related. There's... An overlap, but we are talking about two aspects of great Babylon, the world system, that will one day collapse. The ecclesiastical Babylon is what we're going to look at in chapter 17, and commercial Babylon is what we're going to look at in chapter 18. There is overlap, but there's also a distinction. What we're looking at moving into this chapter is a woman riding upon a beast. Okay, she's riding upon this beast. This beast is what we see in chapter 13, but she's riding upon it. What we see in chapter 18 is the beast, is the world system that he controls. So there's also a distinction. So I think we're looking at the first half of the tribulation and the role that the institutional church will play in bringing Antichrist into power after the true church is raptured out. And then in chapter 18, we're looking at the last half of the tribulation. And when it's all said and done, God has judged the world system. The world system upon which so many of us, even unwittingly, uh, as Christians sometimes depend, will be crushed. The things we can't live without, or we think we can't live without, will one day be crushed. Okay? So um, we can uh, be assured of that, even though we may not understand what exactly that looks like or what each symbol in these passages is referring to. I told you all that I wrote a commentary on this chapter back in 1996. It's about 60 pages. Kids that do English at home uh, for your homeschool, you have to complain when you diagram sentences. I diagrammed the whole chapter, and that's what a a real diagram looks like. All right? That's what a real one looks like. Lots of towers and branches and everything. So it's a real good way to help understand the text. So guys, you're not wasting your time. It's a great way to help you understand the Scriptures. Maybe you can practice diagramming in the Bible when you read it with simple verses. But I wrote this commentary called The Judgment of the Great Harlot, and I set forth an outline. I'm just going to follow that outline today because I feel like it's pretty sound exegetically and it's based upon the text. So that being the case, in chapter 17, we're going to look at five aspects of the judgment of mystery Babylon, the great whore. In the first two verses, we see her introduced 
to John. He is carried away and he is shown something. This isn't some sort of vision he dreams about. He is shown something that literally surprises the heck out of him, astonishes him, completely unexpected. So let's read the first two verses. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. That word there in the original language comes from the word which we get pornography from. Or uh, 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 prostitute or harlot. And uh, um, I think there's a distinction here. In some of your modern versions, you'll see harlot or prostitute. What we're talking about here is a whore, a spiritual whore. There's a difference between a whore and a prostitute often. There's a lot of overlap. A prostitute does what they do for gain. Does what they do for gain, mostly financial gain. Sometimes for uh, uh, influential gain. Sometimes for popularity. But what a whore does, they do for both gain and to satisfy their lust. You know, not all prostitutes are just eager to go out and satisfy their lust. They're trying to make a living and take advantage of people. That's what the prostitute does in Proverbs, taking advantage of a young man. A whore does what she does for gain and to satisfy her own lust. And what we see here is a spiritual whore, guilty of spiritual adultery, drunk with the blood of the saints and martyrs. And it shocks John to the core. The judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So we have a messenger come to John. This is one of the angels who had the seven vials. Okay? By the end of chapter 16, the seventh vial has been opened. And now one of those angels literally steps out of the chronology, out of the narrative, to show John something. This is a true parenthesis that does not further the chronology. The chronology of that tribulation picks up again in chapter 19 when the heavens are opened and the seventh vial culminates with the return of the Son of Man. This angel steps out of the chronology of the vials we've just seen to show something interesting to John, to sum up everything that's happening. Remember in these parentheses, we zoom out to see what's happening behind the scenes. Chapter 7 with the Jewish witnesses. Chapter 11 with the Jewish temple and the street preachers. Chapter 14 with the uh, snapshots uh, of the great war between the dragon and Israel. Here we're zooming out to see what's happening behind the scenes. God's judgment upon the entire world system. This is an aside. The angel shows John, and by showing John, he shows us. By explaining to John, you know, the angel gives the interpretation just like he did for Daniel, just like Jesus did for his disciples with the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the, uh, the, the sower. <coughs> Just as he explains to John, he's explaining to us. John then conveys it to us. Now, sometimes people approach these scriptures as Christians and they say, you know what, this is talking about the last days. This is talking about Antichrist. You know, I don't even believe the true church is going to be here. It's going to be raptured out. So I'm not even going to worry about it. 
But the book of Revelation says, when John writes it in chapter 1, blessed is he that reads and understands the prophecies of this book. So, though we be not here when ecclesiastical Babylon in her fullness is judged, it behooves us to know and understand. Because by knowing and understanding who the great whore is, by knowing and understanding who Antichrist is, we can recognize their spirit today. And their spirit is alive and well. The great whore is alive and well. She has infiltrated our churches. The institutional spirit of Romanism has infiltrated the Protestant churches. It's infiltrated Baptist churches. It's the spirit of the age. And if we don't know this whore and we don't know Antichrist, we won't recognize the spirit that's here today and we'll be deceived. That's why it's so important for us even here and now. Blessed are those who see and understand so that, in chapter 18, verse 4, come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. It behooves us to know so that we can come out if we're caught up in that spirit. So we can come out of dead churches. If you're in a dead church, there's only one biblical, well, two biblical reasons why Christians should leave a local church to whom God ha- in which God has established them. Number one would be doctrinal heresy or, comp- or spiritual compromise, spiritual adultery. Okay? If, if that local church, regardless if it's all the people in there, if they bought into compromise and heresy, you need to get out. Come out of her, my people. And then the only other biblical reason is if God is calling you somewhere else for the sake of the Great Commission. Those are the only two reasons to leave a church. Any other reason is not right because having a disagreement with the pastor, getting your panties in a wad because somebody said something that offended you, creating a reality because of gossip between you and someone else, getting your feelings hurt, church shopping, going somewhere where you can feel more comfortable. These aren't biblical reasons. If there's a disagreement in the church that does not involve doctrinal heresy or spiritual adultery of the leadership, then you have one option as a Christian. That's reconciliation. There are those that used to be amongst us that heard this preaching that haven't followed these things. That amened when it was preached but haven't followed these things. They've gone out from us. It had no biblical reason to do so. But if we, we need to be able to recognize the spirit of this whore so that if we encounter it, we can do what it says to do in Proverbs. Go the other way. The young man walking down the street, he's so foolish and naive, she's sitting there waiting on the corner to deceive him. Come home with me. Let's take our fill of love. The master's not around. It's foolish. Solomon saw it from his window. He, he should have recognized that her steps lead to hell. And he should, have made, he should have made tracks quick. That's what we have to do spiritually. Because the spiritual adulteress is real. She's real. But she's eventually judged. It says here, uh, whom, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. I'm sorry, I'm going to back up. The angel says, come here, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore. This verb here to show means to explain. John's going to get an explanation of what's going to happen. This is very similar to what happened with Daniel in chapter 7, 8, and 9. The angel had to come and explain to him what the beast mean. 
explain to him the, the ram and the he-goat, explain to him the, the, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. God doesn't speak in esoteric deep secrets and not give an explanation or not give us a means to understand. The Bible is not written so that we can't understand it. When God gives His Word, He gives it so we can understand it. The only way we can understand the Almighty God of the universe is if He reveals Himself. I mean, even Buddha, long before Christ was born, knew that because of general revelation that all men have. One person asked Buddha 500 years before Christ was born, how can we know the Creator God, the Supreme God? He said, you can't know Him. We're separated from Him. Between us and Him is a great sea of unknown, a great sea of suffering and karma and all this kind of stuff. There's only one way we could ever know anything about Him. He'd have to send a boat across the sea and take us to Him and show us Himself. Well, 500 years later, that's exactly what God did. He sent a boat or a bridge or a mediator. His name was Jesus the Christ. Okay? Buddha never claimed to be God. People worship him as God today. Buddha said, look, you've got to find your own way. I mean, I'm, this Hinduism does nothing for me, so I'm going to seek my own path. I can't help you. You've got to find your own way. And yet people worship him like a God today. Unbelievable. But God doesn't just reveal things as deep secrets. <coughs> He reveals them so that we can know them. The Bible was written for the common man. Don't let any man ever tell you that you need a priest, a college professor, a Bible scholar to give you understanding in the Word. None of us would have understanding if the Holy Spirit didn't enlighten or illuminate the Scriptures for us. But just like William Tyndale, the great English Bible translator, who was burned at the stake by the Roman church, by the ecclesiastical whore for translating the Bible into English said, if God will allow me to translate the Scriptures, I'll make it so the plowboy in England can know more of the Scriptures than the Pope himself. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why with the dissemination of the printed Word of God and the Reformation, the power of the ecclesiastical slut was checked. And that power she had endured for a thousand years controlling kings was suddenly checked. And then the great reformation and the missionary, the Philadelphia church movement came. And God brought peoples to himself from tribes, tongues, and nations. And the Bible went into all the earth. And that, that great power to influence kingdoms of the Roman church started to decrease and lie dormant. But now in Laodicea, we see it coming back. All roads lead back to Rome. You know, 100 years ago... Bible-believing preachers would never have referred to Roman Catholics as Christians. They would never have said these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Nowadays, our churches claim that Mormon Jesus and Catholic Jesus is the same as Bible Jesus. I mean, some, some of these things offend people, but the Pope is the spirit of Antichrist. Go read the, the famous preachers we all quote and read their little devotions. It's funny how what they said about Romanism never shows up in these little books. We have no business in partnership with that. But its power is increasing. And it's going to come back just like the Roman Empire is going to come back. I believe. I believe that's what we're seeing here. When prophecy is given, it's explained so that it can be conveyed and people can know who God is and what He's doing. This whore has committed fornication 
This is spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery. There's few crimes in the Scriptures spoken of with such disparaging terms as spiritual adultery. Israel. In fact, Hosea the prophet was told to take a heart, to take a whore as a wife, and to be faithful to her despite her unfaithfulness as a picture of Israel's spiritual whoredom against the God of, of their fathers. But And we, we like to stand in judgment of the Jewish people. I was talking to a guy yesterday. He got, his, he got a little uh, nervous about the fact that I've got a sticker in my dojo that says Zionist. And he's like, are you one of these Zionists that you support all these Jews who are running everything in the world and taking over everything and, and all of this? And I said, well, friend, <laughs> there's wicked Jews and Gentiles everywhere, but uh, you know, there's a people that God made promises to that he intends to keep. And uh, there's a people that needs Messiah that haven't been able to see who their Messiah is. But we need to be careful before we start, you know, standing in judgment upon them because the very things they have done, we've done. They had God's word to warn them. We've got God's word and their example to warn us, and we don't listen. So as goes Israel, so goes the church. As Israel was was had committed spiritual adultery with God in the Old Testament, now we're in Laodicea, the rights of the people. The churches have committed a spiritual adultery in many places, just like Israel of old, and yet we stand in judgment. What's written here in verse 2, this entity which is, cre- which is committed fornication with the inhabitants of the earth and has been made drunk with the wine of her fornication, there are some similar prophetic sentences declared in the Old Testament, very similar to this about two other entities. And I think if we'll look at the judgment of these entities historically, it may be a little bit of a sidetrack, but it's interesting because I think it sheds light on um, what we see here. The judgment upon these these two entities historically will help us, I believe, better understand the relationship between chapters 17 and 18 and the future judgment that awaits Babylon. Let's look at two verses in the Old Testament. I'm going to have some of the men help me read this morning. Nahum chapter 3 verse 4. Daniel, if you'll read that. And Paul, if you'll read Isaiah 23, 16, and 17. Now, you guys know we're teaching through Revelation, but we get into every book of the Bible. Because it's all one book. God wrote all of it. Through authors who were just the pens on His page. Holy men of God didn't write their own things. They wrote and were inspired by the Holy Ghost. And then God preserved it in a language we can understand and trust. All right, Nahum 3, 4. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress, the mistress of witchcraft that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcraft. Who is this talking about? Who knows who Nahum was prophesying judgment against? Nineveh. So here we have Nineveh accused of being a, a whore and of selling the nations and bringing the nations into her whoredom. A whoredom that affected the nations. So Nineveh is described in ancient times very similar to the way this whore is described in Revelation 17. Nineveh. If you go on to verse 5, God says, Behold, I am against thee, and I'll Basically, lift, lift your skirts up over your face and I'm going to show the nations your shame. Remember I said that's a good verse. You know, you have a card you give somebody on their birthday. 
We always like to write a scripture reference. And if you want to see whether people really ever go read those scripture references, put Nahum 3, 4, and 5. Then you'll know. And then next time you can give them a good one and you'll know it'll be a blessing to them. But uh, Nineveh is an example. Isaiah 23, 16, and 17. Take in heart. Go about the city, thou harlot that hast been forgotten. Make sweet melody. Sing many songs that thou mayest be remembered. And it shall come to pass after the end of seventy years that the Lord will visit Tyre, and she shall turn her her ire, and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. Okay, so here we have similar language describing Tyre, the Phoenician seaport of Tyre. Spiritual adultery, whoredoms that would affect the whole earth. And God would visit her. Just like it says in 17, God would visit and judge the spiritual prostitute. So, I want to look at Nineveh, and I want to look at Tyre. And I want to look at what God did to them in history. And when we look at these examples, regardless of whether we have full understanding of chapter 17, and to what extent Roman Catholicism is or isn't involved, to what extent ecclesiastical and commercial Babylon are different... Once we look at these examples that are just a couple of many, we can be sure of several things, regardless of whether we get every little minute detail right. We can be sure of some things when it comes to prophecy. So let's look at Nineveh historically. Because in history, we'll see that when God prophesies something, like He did about these cities, it came to pass, not in the way in which it seemed, but when it was all said and done, it was exactly as it was written. And it's kind of amazing, particularly Tyre and what happened there. There's no way Ezekiel could have foreseen that, what, what, what we're going to look at. Um, in fact, for years it looked like Ezekiel got it wrong, and people today even say that. But when we look at history, <laughs> no, God does exactly what He says He's going to do. But before we start talking about Tyre and Nineveh, they, are wicked, they were wicked kingdoms that God judged. And it's easy for us to stand in judgment. We today you know, are quick to stand in judgment upon people of other generations. That's what we see today here in America. Everybody stands in judgment on things that happened here 150 years ago. If you grew up here in the South and your people are from here, you grew up descended from people that had to make very hard decisions 150 years ago. And we think, we, we think it's just simple. You know, people call every, you know, every, every Confederate statue racist, 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 have no clue whatsoever what they're talking about. Have no clue that historically, the first nation in the history of the world to ever outlaw the slave trade in its constitution was the Confederate States of America. No slave ship ever sailed with the Confederate flag. So there's a lot more complex things in history, and we need to be careful passing judgment. Because we need to look in the mirror. There's more as much racism today in this country. And I'm not talking about necessarily white racism. There's racism everywhere. And the idea that there would not be any racism is foolish. That is spoken by fools who have no concept of human nature. And have never traveled anywhere. But that being said, America is one of the least racist places in the world. If you don't know that, then you've never traveled anywhere. I mean, the racism that exists between tribes of people in places like Nepal and in India, that look at, they, look, they look like the same people to me, is, is astounding. 
But you know, I, I, I had an opportunity a couple Sundays ago, and I'm not saying this to... You know, I, I'm not afraid of somebody calling me a racist. I, I could care less. doesn't mean anything. It means less than nothing. I've been called that before on college campuses. I, I sat there, I was preaching one day, and I made the comment, you people don't even care about what, what God has to say. And then I was accused of being a racist because I used the words, you people. <laughs> I could care less. You know, I made a comment this morning. You know, my Facebook page is a pulpit. I don't use it to talk about what I ate for breakfast or, you know, what I'm thinking about. I use it to speak things that I think need to be spoken that people don't hear anymore. And so it upsets people sometimes. That's all right. Um, I got a policy if you never interact with me at all on Facebook. And then all of a sudden you crawl out of your hole and you blast me out of the water. You get warned once, maybe twice, and then I block you because I'm not interested in what you have to say. If you regularly interact with me as we share what God's doing on the mission field and you offer your prayer and encouragement, you've earned the right to make a comment. But my, my page, my rules. And people can't stand that. But it's the way it is. I use it as a pulpit. I say things that need to be said. You know, I made a comment this morning. These fools in the NBA, LeBron James, uh, Kevin Durant, these basketball superstars, they think because they can put a leather ball in an iron hoop that they're an expert on all things sociologically, all things politically. And we need to stop watching these fools. I mean, these guys are a joke anyway. I mean, these cry, baby. I mean, I'm not surprised they cry and whine about the president or about somebody calling them out. I mean, they cry and whine to the refs more than Coach K does. That's just that's for you, Bob. <laughs> but they cry, they whine and cry to the refs. So I'm not surprised they whine and cry about racism. Guys making untold millions a year talking about oppression and racism. Unbelievable to me. Unbelievable to me. And it's it's a joke. And these guys are babies. They'd have never made it in a real man's NBA years ago when there, was a, when there was real defense and when there was a real game. When guys like Bill Beer were around, never would have made it. Cry babies. So what they have to say about politics or the president means less than nothing to me. And they're fools in the biblical sense of the word. Now, if that makes me a racist, so be it. I don't even have to defend myself. There's plenty of white fools, black fools, red, yellow, whatever color God made us, there's fools in every culture. But, you know, I'll let my life speak otherwise. But anyway, that being said, a couple weeks ago I had an opportunity to help out a young family who had run off. They'd run out of gas on the side of the road and the car was literally sticking out in the highway uh, not far from the church. And it was a rental car and... uh, it was, the gas tank, you couldn't... They had gotten some gas in a gas can, but you couldn't stick the gas tank down in there. It was some safety feature. You had to have a specific funnel to open it. You know, they were kind of fretting a little bit. They were trying to get to a family lunch. It was a young black couple from Winston-Salem. And it was a lady. And they were trying to get down the street to the grandmother's house where they meet once a month or something for, for dinner, for lunch. I mean, it was, it was a neat thing. I love how family... Uh, seems to be more important in different cultures, particularly black and Hispanic cultures. They value the family far more than we do in our white culture, and we ought to learn from that. But anyway, I was thinking to myself, well, something happened in my car, which is a newer model, not long ago, and I got out the manual, and it was a simple fix. It was something that I would have probably torn it apart to figure out. So I just asked the lady, I said, you you got a manual in there. There's got to be something going on here. So she got it out, and I started thumbing through it. And sure enough, there was a special funnel 
under the floor in the back with the spare tire. And it's the only thing that would open that. So I pulled out this little plastic funnel. I said, here, try this. And the guy stuck it in there and opened it right up. And they filled up the gas tank. And she just was so thankful that... uh, that uh, she thought I was so smart. And I said, ma'am, I wouldn't have known any of this if I hadn't have found myself in a similar situation and in desperation looked at the manual. So anyway, I got to just, uh, it was a privilege to help them out. But I started talking about, you know, how she was really surprised that I would stop and help them. And I don't know if it was because I was white or what. But I said, ma'am, you know, I I found that generally speaking, people will help each other out. Mm -hmm. I said, the problem, it's not because I'm a good person. It's because I would hope somebody would do that for me. So don't give me any praise. But I've found that if the politicians would just shut up and leave people alone, then the people of this country would get along. But they stir us up because they want us divided. And then I just said, and you know, then we got people out here that sit around whining and crying about something that happened in this country 150 years ago, and they're too blind to see all the blessings they enjoy today. And I said, that's the problem. And that's a problem of the human heart. And uh, it was just a neat little experience where, where, where God gave me an opportunity to, to, to minister to somebody in, in a small way and, uh, you know, speak some truth that they may not hear anywhere else. So, you know, if people would just leave each other, if the government would leave each other alone, uh, uh, we, we'd probably see things a little more peaceful. But, hey, they're stirring things up to fulfill God's will, judgment upon a country that's turned its back upon him. But I say all that because we got all of this stuff going around today. We think we know everything about people that lived back then, and we think because we have an iPhone, we're smarter than the people that built the pyramids, or we're smarter than the people that invented the various things that... Uh, that, that were the foundation of what we have today is foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. We need to pause before we stand in too much judgment on other nations and other cultures that God has judged, and we need to look in the mirror. God threw down Nineveh, and God threw down Tyre, and they've never, ever ascended back anywhere close to where they used to be. Oh, there may be some houses and third world ghettos scattered on the site right now, but that's not a rebuilt city. I don't care what some stupid atheist says who can't even read English when he tries to say the Bible's prophecy has failed. But let's look at a couple verses in the, in the Gospels in Matthew where Jesus refers to Tyre and to Nineveh. As wicked as they were, look what he has to say because I think it speaks to us directly here in America today. <laughs> Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So Jesus told the Jews of His time that, you know, the Ninevites who you... Think of being so wicked and evil and Jonah the great prophet and preacher. They're going to one day rise up in judgment and condemn you people. You people. (laughs) You inheritors of the promise because one greater than Jonah. They repented when Jonah came. Jonah didn't come saying, God loves you. You've got a spiritual shaped vacuum in your heart that only God can fill. He just loves you. Jonah's preaching was 40 days, this city's going to be destroyed by God. It was hellfire and brimstone. And they repented. You know, they didn't moan and cry and talk about love. You know, love heals all after a tragedy like we see here in America after that school shooting. You know, what a terrible thing, but 
You know, first of all, I'm trying to figure out how in a school of 3,000 people with faculty and teachers, plenty of young men, football players, athletes, weightlifters, how a scrawny little kid can walk in there with an AR-15 and walk up and down the halls for an hour shooting people at will. Where were the athletes? Where were the football players? Did it not enter somebody's mind to, to have some honor and to step out there and try to stop it? I mean, the punk didn't have eyes in the back of his head. And the, the longer the gun, the easier to get it out of somebody's hands. I mean, I read an account where he was sitting there getting ready, loading the gun. Somebody asked, us, asked him what he was doing. He said, you know, you better get out of here. I'm going to start shooting the place up. Kids ran off. Well, why didn't somebody just punch him in the face and wrestle him to the ground? There's no honor anymore. We're a nation of cowards. We're a nation of cowards. That's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. Now, they, you know, they talk about this football coach, and, and he's a big hero and all that. He was, he was uh, 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 shot and killed, shielding kids. That's commendable. Yeah. That's commendable. But, guy three times the size of the guy with the shooter, I would think charge the guy and try to take him down. That's what a real hero does. Not cowering and blocking people under death. I'm sorry, that's just what it is. My students that I train in martial arts know that in a situation like that, they have a responsibility to act, as do I. And, but we're a nation of cowards, and it's God, God is turning us against each other, just like He did the Syrians, the Midianites, just like He did the Romans and the Greeks and the Persians. This is God's judgment, and we deserve it because He's giving us blood to drink because of all the blood we've shed at the unborn. And I know that's not popular, but it's true, and I make no apology for it. And then our president, I mean, I, I voted for the guy, I pray for the guy, but guys, wake up, he's a lot of talk, a lot of talk. The scripture he used when he addressed the nation was woefully taken out of context. If you don't have any better discernment than that, then we really do have a spiritual problem. You know, he took a, a verse where Hezekiah is pleading with God. Isaiah said, look, you need to get your house in order because God is ready to take you home. He's, he's done with you. You're going to go to be with your fathers. And then Hezekiah whined and cried, Well, I want to live longer. I want to live longer. And so God gave the man what he wanted. Sometimes we moan and cry. God gives us what, what we want. And I've seen that in my own life. And it didn't result in very positive things. I should have taken God's will initially. Well, God gave Hezekiah 15 extra years. Guess what happened in those 15 years? His son Manasseh was born. Manasseh was the most wicked king that ever ruled in any of the two kingdoms put together. And he wrought utter destruction in the kingdom of Judah. So to take a verse like that and, and apply it to America's situation shows no spiritual discernment whatsoever. We need to pray for him. That man is surrounded by people that claim to know God. Some of them bet more so than others. But there are people that surround him that preach this prosperity garbage on television every, every Sunday. I've seen them. I've seen them standing around them in bad suits and they're laying hands on them and all this. They're not people that we would listen to because they're false teachers. We need to pray for him that God would confound that type of counsel and that he would use the authority granted to him. Because at the end of the day, you can talk a big talk and you can tweet a big tweet, but if you won't use the power you've been elected to have, then you're no better off than the one that was in there before. The problem, we want to talk about, and, and, and they want to talk about mental health. Nobody wants to talk about spiritual health. 
You know, fortunately, Manasseh, that wicked king, was taught a lesson. Uh, I think it was Babylon came in there and taught him a lesson. And then at the end of his life, he realized what needed to be done. Not mental hospitals and gun control, but he repented and actually pulled down all the idols and stuff and actually did something. You know, our founding fathers, our early presidents called the nation to repentance. Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War called the nation to repentance. Even as recently as World War II, calling the nation to repentance. That's what needs to happen. There's one thing he should do, and that's call the nation to repentance, but he won't do it. But alas, these things are written. And in many ways, Nineveh will rise up in judgment on us one day because it listened to the preaching of God's prophet. Here we have people preaching the gospel in the streets. I know many of them. <coughs> no one listens. You need to be careful. Matthew chapter 11. I'm getting off subject, but if we can't speak to the things that are, rele- that are happening to this very day, then what good is all this if it doesn't tie into what we see happening right now? And it does. I've never been one to drink the Kool-Aid of any politician. Just because I vote for a guy one day doesn't mean I'll vote for him four years later. You know, I don't drink anybody's Kool-Aid. And for a long time I've said the Communist Party in this country has two names, Republican and Democrat. Mm -hmm. And we need to realize that. We need to do our duty, but we need to be vigilant and not be foolish. And think salvation comes from an area it doesn't. Pray for our president. At least he's not an enemy of the church. At least right, not right now. We need to pray for him. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. These were villages that Jesus preached to. You go to Israel today, Chorazin is a national park site. It's just ruins. There's a few walls of an old synagogue uh, that, that you can walk in where Jesus probably preached. Bethsaida is uh, they're trying to make it into a national park site, but it's all grown over. We've gone in there at night and had to walk through the trees and everything, and you can find ruins laying around. There ain't nothing there. I mean, it was judged. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works were done in you that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So as we look at a kingdom that God destroyed and judged, as for Chorazin and Bethsaida, it's going to be more tolerable for that in the day of judgment than even us as America. If Tyre and Sidon had had the preaching that we've had today, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. They'd still be standing. If it's going to be more tolerable for some than others in the day of judgment, then that means that hell is is not one single punishment. There's degrees of punishment. Even the least punishment in hell is not something I want any part of. But it's going to be worse for some than others. I mean, it says it right there. Those are Jesus' words. I didn't say it. Matthew 15. So I'm giving you the application before I give you the history. I'm I'm flipping it. 15 verse 21. Look at this. This happened in the midst of Jesus' ministry. You know, Jesus was sent to bear witness in the Galilee, primarily, as was prophesied in Isaiah. 
how we would know who Messiah would be. His ministry would be focused in Galilee. Galilee of the nations, the doorway to the Gentiles. We've always talked about that. But primarily, he preached to the Jews. And there was a couple of encounters with Gentiles. But here in Matthew 15, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So here we have Jesus leaving, traveling north of the historical boundaries of Israel going up into Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon. And it says that, Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried on him. So we have a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites were largely, uh, have largely been extinct. But in Jesus' day, where Tyre and Sidon is, it was an area of land that was given to the tribe of Asher at the time of Joshua, and they never went in and possessed it. So the Phoenicians, who were descended from the Canaanites, continued and became one of the greatest maritime peoples in the history of the world. And then God wrought havoc upon them, as we'll see here in a few minutes. But yet there was still a smattering about. And Jesus ran into a Canaanite woman woman, that said unto him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. Jesus ignored her. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away. She keeps crying after us. But he answered and said, I'm not sent to the law. I am, I am not sent but on, only unto, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus said, my job is to preach to the Jews. I'm not sent to these Gentiles. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now, these are pretty blunt words. I mean, I'm thinking, man, that's kind of rude. And she said, that's true, Lord. But yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So here we had a woman that instead of arguing with God about truth that the, uh, that Jesus was sent primarily to reach the Jews, it was His disciples who would be sent to reach the Gentiles. When Jesus spoke biblical truth about the promises of Israel being applied to her, I mean being applied to as who they are meant to be applied to and not spiritually allegorizing it upon someone else, He spoke truth. But even this woman in her simplicity, this Canaanite knew that if Messiah is real... And if Messiah is to be king of Israel, then his blessings will inevitably be upon the Gentiles as well. Have to be. And even a dog enjoys the crumbs. Even if the people don't feed him under the table, he he enjoys the crumbs that fall. I mean, this was a profound response from a Canaanite woman of Tyre and Sidon that reflected a faith that very few people in Israel ever had. So here we have a descendant of a people that was judged And yet there was something redeemable. Yet there's something that gives us pause. Because many who have been judged, many civilizations that have passed away from history will rise up in judgment upon our nation one day. Because if they would have had access to the Bible and biblical truth, God's truth like we do, they would have repented long ago and would still be standing. So those are some things worth considering as we look at Nineveh and we look at Tyre. I love history. 
Those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Those who don't know their history are doomed not to repeat it. Sometimes we need to repeat our history, particularly as Bible-believing Christians. But we won't do it because we don't know it. And if we don't know where we came from, how do we know where we're going? The Bible is God's Word. It's the greatest lesson book there is. History shows, improves, and confirms God's Word to be true. And it reveals to us what Solomon says so bluntly in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that happened before happens now. Human nature does not change. And so lest we think we're different than everybody before, it's all happened before. And so we can look at where we're going as a nation today and we can see exactly where it's been before and we can understand what's going on. shouldn't be confusing. What's happening to America right now is exactly what brought down the Roman Empire. The browning of America is doing exactly what the barbarianizing of the Roman Empire did. Started at the borders. And before you know it, the empire was, was gone. <clears throat> Judgment. That's what's happening. Nineveh. Nineveh, the great capital of the Assyrian Empire that was founded by Nimrod at Babel. I'm not getting into all that. We've been into all that. Nineveh fell to the Babylonians in 612 B.C. It was related to uh, Pharaoh Necho coming up and the death of King Josiah, the Battle of Carchemish. We talked about all that. Nineveh was... Um, built on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, across from modern-day what's called Mosul, which is in Iraq, but it's Kurdistan. It's the area of northern Iraq that's primarily inhabited by the Kurds, who were persecuted by the Iraqis, persecuted by the, by the Turks. The Turks have actually crossed into Iraq. I mean, just terrible persecution. There's some Kurdish Christians up there. There's Kurdish Muslims. It's just a place that's been... A very dangerous place to be for years and years. Uh, Saddam Hussein launched chemical weapons against the Kurds in this area long ago when he was in power. But now, you know, Saddam Hussein, as powerful as he was, he's nobody now. I mean, nobody even remembers his name. That's how things work with the wicked. But Jonah went and preached, and that generation repented. But Nahum the prophet prophesied its destruction. There was a time of respite. When there was repentance and revival, I believe there's hope for that in America. But the judgment ultimately came. And Nahum prophesied 150 years after Jonah. And what he said would happen happened 50 years later. So the details he uses couldn't possibly have been foreseen. Because they didn't happen until 50 years later. Yeah, Nineveh might have been getting weak. But how the city would fall... And why the gates would be wide open so the Babylonians could just walk in there. I mean, he had no way of knowing that. In the prophet Nahum, it says a few things about the destruction of Nineveh. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. It's Nahum in Hebrew. Nahum. It says in chapter 1 verse 8 that God would make an utter end. Of uh, Nineveh. An utter end. That means she's not coming back. An utter end. It says that their destruction would come in verse 1 while they were drunk. While they were drunken as drunkards, they'd be devoured. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says that their gates would be wide open to their enemies and that a fire would destroy their bars. 
So when their enemies came, they find the gates open. And a great conflagration that they themselves didn't set. It'd already be there. The destruction would already be happening when they got there. And the gates would be wide open. In chapter 3, verse 19, it says, There's no healing for thy bruise. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, the fall of Nineveh would be easy. It would be like figs that fall when the tree is shaken. Like mangoes that fall when a mango is shaken, like the Nepalis say. You know, the Nepalis have a proverb, go shake the mango tree. You know, they come to the white man, they see the white man, they ask him to help him, give him some money or something. And I used to get offended by it. Got on my nerves. You know, you befriend a Christian and you think, man, this guy's got an ulterior motive. One of these days he's going to ask for money. And they do a lot. But they're just shaking the mango tree. Their, their, their idea is, look, I may as well walk up to the tree and shake it and see if something falls. If nothing falls, then I'm not out anything. But if it does, I'm blessed. So let's go up to the white man. Let's ask him if he can help us with money. If he gives us some, that's great. If he doesn't, no big deal. That's their attitude. Maybe we should have that attitude about sharing the gospel. Let's go shake the mango tree. Let's go share the gospel. If something, if something good comes great, if it doesn't, then no big deal. So we can learn things from these cultures. We can learn things. But Nineveh's destruction would be like that fig tree. Shake it and they'd fall with ease. What's amazing is that this happened exactly like it was written. The fall of Nineveh was so accurate as Nahum prophesied that people have tried to say Nahum must have written after this happened. There's no way he wrote prophesied this before. This was written after the fact. In fact, when Nineveh's fall happened, it literally shocked the ancient world. Just like the fall of the Soviet Union suddenly shocked our modern day world. It shocked the ancient world. The Medes and the Persians and an alliance with the Babylonians uh, in 612 uh, under Nebuchadnezzar's father came and, uh, to siege, uh, and besieged uh, Nineveh to destroy it. They were, the Assyrians were at war with the Babylonians and we'd see Babylon, Babylon be victorious over the Assyrians and the Egyptians and then she would become the world power. Just like had been prophesied to Hezekiah by Isaiah years and years before when Babylon was just a basically a little old province. It was a three-month siege that started in 612 B.C., uh, it ended in July, and then there was basically one of those months was just the, 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 the enemies were just looting the city. I mean, they spent a month going in there and uh, taking whatever they wanted to. I want to read you a little excerpt here about what happened. This was written better than I could say. It says, in 612, Nabopolassar, this has been about 50 years after Nahum prophesied. He's a father of Nebuchadnezzar. He united the Babylonian army with an army of Medes and Scythians and led a campaign which captured the important Assyrian cities in the north. Then they laid siege to Nineveh. But the walls of the city were too strong for battering rams. So they tried to start, they decided to try and starve the people out. Well, the people will hold up just like they would be in Babylon years later when the Persians were outside and they were partying because they thought, hey, you know, we're safe. <laughs> Our walls are too thick. Drinking and partying. There had been a famous oracle in, that, in those old times that said there's only one way that Nineveh will ever be taken. It will only be taken when the river becomes its enemy. No, no man can take it. 
Nineveh was built on the Tigris River. And the oracles had said, the so-called secular prophecies had said, when the river becomes its enemy, then it'll fall. Very interesting. At the end of this three-month siege, when the Babylonians were, were outside, it says that rain came. Rain came in a desert part of the world in abundance in such a way that people were not accustomed to. And it says that the waters of the Tigris ended up flooding to such an extent it came inside the city. So the waters of the Tigris inundated part of the city and ended up... What does water do to rock? It breaks it or turns it over. And the water ended up toppling a part of the wall. This impenetrable wall just fell over. Overturned one of the walls for a distance of, uh, you know, quite a distance. I mean, I don't know what it would exactly uh, 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 translate into with our modern uh, um, measurements, but I'm thinking somewhere around 20 to 50 feet. Now, that's a guess. Don't quote me on that. The king, when he saw this, was convinced that this oracle was true and that they were doomed because the river came in the city. So here's what he did. Despairing any means of escape to avoid falling alive into the enemy's hands, he constructed in his palace an immense funeral pyre, placed on it his gold and silver and his royal robes, and then shutting himself up with his wives and eunuchs in a chamber formed in the midst of the pile, disappeared in the flames. He committed suicide, set a big fire in the city. And as a result, the fire burned down and caused the gates of Nineveh to be destroyed and opened to its besiegers. But even this submission did not save the proud city. It was pillaged and burned and then razed to to the ground so completely as to evidence the implacable hatred enkindled in the minds of subject nations by the fierce and cruel Assyrian government. So, like Nahum said, the enemy walked right in the city. The gates were open. The river flooded the city, toppled the wall. The king says we're doomed because of an ancient oracle. He goes in a palace, sets himself on fire. The great fire causes immense destruction and results in the gates being opened to the besiegers. They come in there and instead of you know, accepting submission, they just raise the place to the ground and destroy it. We read that prophecy in Nahum and we may not know exactly what it means at at one point, but when we look back, we see that it was fulfilled exactly like God said. When God said that the gates would be open, the gates were open. Literally. That didn't mean that an army would have the power to break through the gates. They were open. When it says that the bars would be on fire, there was a fire in the midst of the city. When it said they would be drunk when their judgment came, they were drunk and partying, confident in their security. When it said that... um, Um, There would be no healing. There was no healing. The city was raised to the ground. When it said it would be easy for the army, it was easy. Everything that was said happened exactly as it was written. That's the nature of biblical prophecy. It's funny because Nineveh was so destroyed that for years, skeptics... In the 16th and 17th centuries, doubted whether that city really ever existed. You know, people used to say that we can't trust all the Old Testament as history. I mean, even a place like Nineveh, we have no archaeological evidence that it ever existed. So skeptics, especially when 
the theory of evolution, even prior to Charles Darwin, started taking root because of the writings of Charles Lyle and others. I mean, Charles Darwin basically plagiarized. He, wasn't, he didn't come up with some grand theory. He plagiarized what people have already been talking about for years. But the skeptics said, you know, I don't think we can trust the Bible. But in 1850, the ruins were found. They were literally buried under the sand. Some archaeologists, they found the great palace of King Sargon. King Sargon was mentioned in the book of Isaiah. People doubted whether he was even real. They found his palace. They found a library that contained 22,000 cuneiform documents or fragments thereof. And they actually found the skeletons of about 40 defenders of the wall of Nineveh lying where they fell when the Babylonians came in there. I mean, they were, I've seen the picture. They're just laying there dead like they've been killed on the wall. So it was found. And so the Bible proved itself true. The ruins are there today. They've been excavated, but it's in a, a, a very unstable region. And so the, the threat's been, you know, ISIS has gone in there and messed up stuff like they always do everywhere else. But Nineveh was guilty of fornication, spiritual fornication that affected the nations. God said he would judge her. And there would be no healing for her bruise. And that's what happened. 150 years after Jonah, God, through Nahum the prophet, gave the sentence. And 50 years after that, exactly what was written to the letter took place. What about Tyre? Let me talk about Tyre this morning. Maybe we'll end there. Tyre was a Phoenician seaport. In fact, I'm going to pause now. If Matthew will turn on the, um, the, uh, the TV, I want to show you. We're going to use Google Earth this morning. Okay, it's not... Looking for the Apple TV. Because I have an iPhone and we're going to use some screen mirroring, some airdrop here. Doesn't mean I'm smarter than the preachers of old. Doesn't mean that. We can find it. We're not even smart enough to connect it. Turn off the We did it the other night, Ronnie. <laughs> Thought it was going to be real neat to show you guys 
something from We might just have to Can you read can you turn it off and turn it back on? Yeah, and uh restart it. Yeah, let's try that. While he's restarting it, let me just uh talk a minute. Um, Tyre was a Phoenician seaport in modern-day Lebanon. It's really not that far north, about maybe 25 miles north of the modern, the northern border of Israel today, the modern state of Israel at Rosh Hanikra. So it's not very far north. The Phoenicians were descended from Ham's son Canaan, and they also mixed with the son of Shem named Aram, which kind of moved up into Syria. And that's where we get the word Aramaic from, the Aramaic language. Uh, so primarily Canaanites. And the city of Tyre dates back to the time of Babel. Um, it would have been founded around the time the people were scattered. They were a maritime people. The Phoenicians were known for their navies and their sea trade and their merchant, their merchant routes and some say that the Phoenicians may have even made it to North America. They may have even, they went everywhere in boats. Um, Tyre was actually given to the tribe of Asher, but like I said earlier, they never possessed it. Israel never went in there and took what they were supposed to. They were disobedient pretty quickly after they got into the land. Surprise, surprise. It's the way man's nature is. Given to Asher, but they were never possessed and didn't drive out the Canaanites. And Tyre eventually became one of the wealthiest trading cities in all of history because it had a very unique geographic position, very good ports. And so that in the ancient world, it was a common city to all nations. Just like New York. New York's a common city for all nations. It's where the United Nations takes place. Everybody knows New York. People come and go out of there. If you've ever been to JFK Airport, you'll try never to fly through there again. Um, but Tyre was a common city of all nations. It was a merchant port. Some say it was the Sears and Roebuck of the ancient world. Trade in all sorts of commodities. Its navy went out. Its ships went out and gathered things from all over the world, brought them back, and people came in there and they traded Traded in all sorts of commodities, all sorts of vices. We know of a king of Tyre in the Old Testament, Hiram, king of Tyre. He was actually a friend and ally of King David and later of King Solomon. The people of Tyre, the king of Tyre donated building materials from the cedar fir forest and things they traded in. Donated them to King David for his house. They donated lots of materials and labor to help Solomon with the building of the temple 
and with the building of some of his other houses. Uh, Solomon spent a lot more time building his own house than he did the temple of God, sadly. Uh, but they supplied ships for Solomon's navy. Solomon had a navy that went all over the place, you know, and traded in gold and apes and all kinds of stuff. And uh, King Hiram supplied ships. Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal, was from Sidon. Sidon was another uh, Phoenician seaport north of there. And um, they, were, they were from the same people. They were prominent force, but they were rivals. And once King Ahab married Jezebel, that kind of made the people, the Tyrians mad, and so the alliance with Israel kind of went away after that. Uh, Sidon's about 25 miles north of Tyre. And so the friendship with Israel pretty much ended in the days of Ahab. So that by the time Israel was carried away captive, by the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the Tyrians rejoiced. <laughs> they made fun of Israel when they were being judged by God. Is this thing not working? It's really unfortunate. Now, did I lose the... Okay, let's go to... I want to show you modern-day Tyre here. Okay, I want to show you where we're talking about in terms of, of Israel. This is northern Israel. Here we, you see the border here? This is Israel and Lebanon in the north. And here you have um, let's see here. Here you have what's called Roshanikra. Roshanikra are these cliffs and they're these really cool caves and grottoes you can climb back into and the, the ocean's coming in there. It's pretty amazing. It's a Amazing place. I've actually been here. See this beach right here? Uh, I camped out there one night, and I walked over to this little cove, and I took a bath in the, in the Mediterranean. I was dirty. I needed to be clean. So we went up to Roshanikra, and we climbed around in here, and then we drove up to the border. There's a wall here, and the IDF is stationed there. It's a no-man zone, and I got to speak to a young Israeli there and talked a little bit about the things of God. He gave me his hat. I've got it to this day. But you can't keep going. But if you go north of there, not very far. Um, let me. I've got the directions messed up here. Um, well, where did I go? Oh, if you go north of here, you can see the border. This is Tyre. Tyre's up here, and it's a peninsula of land. Or it's where Tyre used to be. And it's pretty much your typical third world ghetto. Just urban sprawl now. But it used to be a mighty city. What you see here is a peninsula. But what existed in ancient times was not a peninsula. It was a mainland city, old Tyre. And then off the coast, about a half a mile out there, was the island fortress of Tyre. So you had old Tyre, which is the mainland city. And then you had Little Tyre, which was the, the island city where, you know, the boats could literally come right up and park. Just like we'd park a car and they could trade wares and bring them from all over the world and people would come and shop. It was an amazing place. There was about a, and you can't see that today because the landscape's been changed. But there was about a, a, a half mile wide channel between the island and the mainland city that was 20 feet deep. And in that channel... The waves and the wind were ferocious. There was a southwesterly wind that blew all the time and just made it ferocious. 
So all the trading and the good harbors were out here on the other side of the island where it was calm. And so for whatever reason, the wind sucked through that channel and it made very choppy waters. And so Little Tyre on the island was an amazing fortified city. Its walls on the landward side looking back at the mainland city were 150 feet high. And so it was considered impregnable. And so, you know, they were a powerful Phoenician city and became very wealthy, very rich. But just as we see today when riches are accrued by a city or a civilization, what results is dereliction and spiritual decay. Let's look at Ezekiel 28 for a moment. Ezekiel 28, verses 16 and 17. This is written about the king of Tyre. And remember, Old Testament prophecy, there's an initial fulfillment, a literal application to the day and time in which it's written, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. We know that behind the king of Tyre that Ezekiel is prophesying against is Satan himself. Because we see the king of Tyre is spoken of later in the chapter of actually having lived in Eden, the garden of God. Of having been an anointed cherub. So there's prophecy about Satan here. The prince of Tyre is a type of Antichrist. The prince of Tyre at this time, the king of Tyre is a type of Satan. So in the midst of this, this is what the prophet says to Tyre. Verse 16, By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. This is talking about Satan. That's what happened when he fell from heaven. But the king of Tyre is a type of that. And Tyre had become wealthy. And therefore she was filled with violence and sin. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. So here we had a city that had gotten rich. And because of its beauty and because of its blessings, it became prideful. And that pride led to violence and sin. And then because of that, she would be cast to the ground. What, what, What is being prophesied against Tyre is exactly what happened in the mountain of God with Satan. He fell. And it's exactly what will happen in the last days with Antichrist, Satan, Superman. And it should give us pause here in America. We've got many of the blessings here in this country that Tyre once enjoyed. But we, those riches have made us prideful. They've made us lazy. They've filled our nation with violence. And God's consistent. And we need to wake up. But if you back up, Chapters 26, 27, and 28 go together. What you've got in 26 is a very detailed prophecy about the destruction of Tyre. 
Okay? When you get to chapter 27, you've got a lamentation for Tyre. Mourning over her destruction. It's very similar to what we see in Revelation 18 concerning the lamentation over the fall of commercial Babylon. And then when you get to chapter 28, you have the prince of Tyre, the lament for the prince of Tyre, the ruler at the center of the world's commerce. We know this is a picture and a prophecy of Antichrist. And then we have a lament for the king of Tyre, Satan, the anointed cherub. So all of this goes together. It tells us at the beginning of chapter 26 that Ezekiel, that this word came to Ezekiel in the 11th year of Jehoiachin's captivity. Ezekiel dates his prophecies from the captivity of Jehoiachin. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? There were several groups of captives. Daniel and the three Hebrew children were led out in 605 B.C. In 597 B.C., King Jehoiachin was taken captive. And Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah on the throne. Zedekiah, the last king, was uh, ruled for 11 years and then he rebelled. And then Nebuchadnezzar came back in 586 and just burned the city and trampled it to the ground and burned the temple and carried, killed the king or, or blinded the king, took his eyes out right after he killed his sons and then carried them all off to Babylon. That was it. Only left a few poor people in the land. So Ezekiel is dating from the time of Jehoiachin's captivity. He began prophesying in the fifth year of the captivity. Ezekiel went out with the second group after Daniel. He went with King Jehoiachin. Now, this is the 11th year of Jehoiachin's captivity, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's the same year that Nebuchadnezzar will destroy, destroys the temple and destroys Jerusalem. So, we know that in this year, the uh, 11th year of the king's captivity, the same time Nebuchadnezzar gets this prophecy, I mean, Ezekiel gets this prophecy, we know that on the fourth month, in the ninth day of that same year, Jerusalem was broken up and the temple was destroyed after an 18-month siege. So in other words, this prophecy is given around the same time the temple is destroyed. It could have been before while the city was under siege or it could have been after. We learn from Ezekiel that he doesn't hear about the destruction of the temple for a little bit of time after it happens. It took time for news to come. So he probably didn't even know what was going on exactly. But he gives a prophecy of Tyre's destruction and we'll see that it's just a matter of months that the fulfillment of this prophecy begins to take place. But not the whole prophecy. Why this prophecy against Tyre specifically? She was wicked. But look what it says in chapter 26, verse 2 and 3. Son of man, because Tyrus has said against Jerusalem, Aha! She is broken, that was the gates of the people. She is turned unto me, I shall be replenished. Now she is laid waste. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causes his waves to come up. So what is the occasion of this? Tyre who used to be an ally with Israel, is sitting and watching what Nebuchadnezzar is doing to Jerusalem. And she rejoices. She mocks the people of Israel and she laughs and says, with their destruction, we will benefit. God says no. Very important principle here. Here you have a Gentile nation laughing and mocking at the people of Israel when God judges them. 
We see the exact same thing in the prophet Obadiah. Edom laughed and mocked when God judged Israel. And Obadiah the prophet. Very clear. It says in... Obadiah is just a short book, so I wouldn't say chapter 1 verse. I would say Obadiah verses 10 through 12. It says... For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither, neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction." Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. So you had Tyre doing that at this time, and you also had the people of Edom doing that, the descendants of Esau. And God prophesied the destruction of both. There's a lesson here. It's a very dangerous thing for a Gentile nation or Gentile people to mock and laugh at God's people Israel when He judges them. It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing for the church to stand in judgment when we're guilty of the very same things. You know, there are things in the Scriptures called biblical principles. And Bible verses teach us biblical principles. You know, a lot of people know a bunch of Bible verses, but the biblical principles that apply to even us today are lost on them completely. It's something we try to emphasize in my martial arts class. I could teach you a self-defense technique against a specific attack. You've got one technique you can use against a specific attack. But if I can teach you a principle, you've got a thousand techniques. It's like that with the Bible. You may have a verse. If you've got a verse, you've got a verse. But if you can study God's Word and, 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 and let Scripture interpret Scripture, and you can learn and make its principles a part of you, you've got thousands of verses right on the tip of your tongue. But alas, we can't see the Biblical principle. Proverbs 24 says this. And I may just conclude here today. Proverbs 24 says in verses 17 and 18, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbles. There's a lot of enemies in this country today. There are people on television, I can't stand to look at them. Some of these wicked people on the mainstream news channels, I can't stand to look at their ugly faces. There's just demons in there. You can see by looking at them. And there's people out here that are our enemies. There's people out here that are Americans that are not, they're our enemies. And we see God's judgment come in different ways and people that are important one day, all of a sudden they're gone. But we need to be careful and not rejoice. It ought to make us sad. We rejoice at God's judgment, but not in a prideful way like Tyre and Edom. Rejoice not when thine enemy falls, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. This is the mistake that Edom and Tyre made. And we need to be careful. You know, I support the modern state of Israel, but that doesn't mean I think everything she does is right. She does some pretty stupid things. And there's some stupidity there. There's some wickedness in that country. So we need to be those that don't rejoice when God's judgment comes, 
but see things for what they are. If God, if God says He made a promise to somebody, if God says somebody's precious to Him, then it ought to be precious to us. And God forbid we'd ever mock. And that's what Tyre and, si- that's what Tyre and Edom did. And their judgment came. In Ezekiel 26, a couple of things were told would happen to Tyre. Verse 3 is very important. God says, I'm against you, just like He said in Nineveh. And then He says, I will cause many nations to come against you. Many nations. So over time, many nations, it says, would come against Tyre, not just Babylon. In verse 4, it says these many nations would break down the walls and literally the, the city would be scraped. Its very dust would be scraped so that nothing would be left but bare rock. In fact, that top of a rock would later be a place where fishermen spread their nets. Where Tyre, mighty Tyre was today, mainland Tyre, one day it would be a rock where fishermen go fishing. Very detailed. Then when we get into verses 8 through 11, we're told what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. And Nebuchadnezzar literally does this a few months after Ezekiel prophesies. It says in verse 7, God's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar upon Tyrus, king of Babylon, from the north. And then it says in verse 8, He shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field. Remember Tyre had a mainland city and an island city. The mainland city was built in the field on the mainland. He shall slay with the sword the daughters in the field. He shall make a fort against thee and cast a mount against thee and lift up the buckler against thee. And he shall set engines of war against thy walls. And with his axes he shall break down thy towers. By the reason of the abundance of his horses, their dust shall cover thee. The the dust of the towers that he broke down would cover thee, Tyre. Thy walls shall shake at the noise of the horsemen and of the wheels and of the chariots when he shall enter into thy gates as men enter into a city wherein is made a breach. With the hooves of his horses shall he tread down all thy streets. He shall slay thy people by the sword and thy strong garrison shall go to the ground. And they shall make a spoil of thy riches and make a prey of thy merchandise. They shall break down thy walls and destroy thy pleasant houses. And they shall lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the middle of the water. Judgment. Start with Nebuchadnezzar. God says many nations are going to come. We're told what he would do. And then all of a sudden, he becomes they. And we're told that they would literally take the um, walls and the timber and the stones of the city and put it in the water. Uh, They would do that. Well, when we look at history, what we learn is that in 586, after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, he marched north to Tyre and he started what would be a 13-year siege of the city. You know, these people left, you know, they retreated... Uh, and uh, they, were, they, they hold themselves up in the mainland city, in the island city, and Nebuchadnezzar surrounded it. 13 years, 586 to 573 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar besieged Tyre. And ultimately, he destroyed the mainland city of old Tyre. 
He destroyed it. Everything that's written here, he, he, he. He went into the mainland city. A lot of the people retreated into the island fortress across the channel. He destroyed old Tyre. The mainland city was destroyed. But what's written in verses 12 through 14, you know, if I kept reading, you know, it says, you know, God says, I will make thee like the top of the rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do any of that. The, the, old, the, the island city continued. He didn't do any of that. And so people say, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to do all this stuff. He didn't do it. God's word ain't true. We can't trust it. But Ezekiel himself says that Nebuchadnezzar didn't complete the judgment. If you look at chapter 29, 17 and 18, it came to pass in the 27th year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me saying, this was about 570 B.C., so this was after the siege of old Tyre, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, no, I'm sorry, uh, that would be, uh, yeah, about 70, 570 B.C., 16 years later. Uh, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyrus. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was peeled, yet he had no wages, nor his army, for Tyrus, for the service that he had served against it. Therefore, I'm going to give him Egypt, is what God said. So Nebuchadnezzar did a great service. He began the fulfillment of God's prophecy. But he didn't get any wages for it because the people retreated. The island fortress remained. And so God says, because of his service, I'm going to give him Egypt as a reward. So mainland Tyre was destroyed. Um, but the, old, the uh, new, uh, new Tyre, the island fortress remained. There was no scraping of the rock. There was no... Uh, Timbers and ruins thrown into the sea. There was no fishermen. So it looks like maybe Ezekiel didn't know what he was talking about because Nebuchadnezzar didn't do all this. But what most people fail to see is God said He'd bring many nations against Tyre. Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar's just one of them. After Nebuchadnezzar, there was a period of great financial depression and Tyre was assimilated into the Persian Empire. The ruins of the mainland city were just left there. I mean, he came in there, they battered down the walls, trampled it down, and the old city just laid there. It never rebuilt it. The mainland city on the mainland. And so the island city kind of went into financial depression for a while. The Persian Empire in 538 B.C. assimilated it into their empire. In 392 B.C., Egypt assaulted the island city. And at that time, there was a war going on between the Persians and the people of Cyprus out there in the water, not far from Tyre. And Tyre was caught in the middle of all that mess. I mean, so it was just floundering. And yet the ruins of old Tyre were still sitting there on the mainland, still left there. You can go to Jerusalem today where they've excavated down in the old city below the temple, and you can actually see parts of the wall that fell from the temple into piles when the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. They're sitting there, just like they were when the Romans did it. They're sitting there. So, I mean, it's not unusual. The ruins of the mainland city that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, just like all the he passages say here, they were still sitting there while this was going on. Then came 332 B.C. 332 B.C., 250 years after this prophecy, came a young man named Alexander the Great. 
I'm going to stop there today. It's going to get late. But this is a really incredible example of how God's prophecies were fulfilled to the minutest detail. Would tire be scraped? Would her stones and timbers and dust be thrown into the sea? Would she become a place where fishermen were casting nets? Would she ever be rebuilt? I mean, we can look on Google Earth and we can see urban sprawl from a third world country there. But would Tyre ever be rebuilt? We can see ruins, but what are we looking at? There's a picture from, I think it's, I don't have it, uh, but there's a picture, an old black and white picture from 1931 of someone who, uh, of Syrian fishermen that are literally hauling in their nets from the site of ancient Tyre, from the ruins, from the reefs out there. In fact, if you go there today, you can see some of it in the satellite photo. There's all these black reefs around there. And so it's, it's an impossible place to navigate. Um, you, can't bring, you, know, you can't bring ships and stuff in there. Now, there's no way that could have been there back in the old days or it wouldn't have been the chief navigational port of the whole world. So something's going on. And Alexander the Great was instrumental in that. And then after him, the king of the north, the king of the south, the Egyptians, the Turks. Uh, it's just amazing. So we see, we're see we going to see some details. It's an interesting story. I'll get into that next time. And then maybe this will help us understand the details we're going to see about the world system at the last days. I hope you don't think this is just a distraction. I just find these things interesting. So why don't we, why don't we conclude and I'll... Next week, uh, we've got a brother and his family coming in. They're going to be sharing with us about their ministry. Uh, Brother TJ is from, lives and works in Peru with his wife Pamela. They're going to come in uh, and they're going to, he's going to share a little bit about his ministry. And uh, so we'll prob- that'll probably take up the whole service. And then the week after that, um, we'll continue. We'll just go as far as we can until I leave. And then we'll pick it up when I come back. I mean, we're not on a schedule. That's the great thing about it. We can... You know, this, this study's taken more than five years, so what's another five years? Um, and so uh, I encourage you to uh, uh, prepare for that next week. TJ's a good brother, and uh, he's opened his home to me uh, several times down in South America, and we'll be doing it again this summer. And uh, he grew up in a Mormon home, and the Lord saved him, and he's the only true believer in his family. And uh, just is really... Involved in a good ministry in Peru with the with the uh, the slum children and is very bold to preach the gospel and uh, we've enjoyed helping him with his ministry. So he'll be here next week and uh, we'll look forward to that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word today. Thank you for the testimony of history that that proves your word to be true. Lord, we know that when you say something, uh, you're you're going to do it exactly like you say it. And even though we can't understand it or it doesn't seem possible as we look at it before it happens, it is always as it is written. And Lord, when it comes to judgment, if anything, your word is an understatement, never an overstatement. 
And Lord, that gives us pause as we consider what's coming. So may these things motivate us to go out and share the gospel. May they motivate us to walk closer with you. May they motivate us to be wise and understanding what the Spirit of God is versus the Spirit of Antichrist. And may they motivate us just to love our fellow man, our family and friends that don't know Christ. Love them enough to tell them the truth. That's, that's what matters, Lord. And so bless the food, bless our fellowship. And uh, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee and we're grateful for the freedom we still have to gather and worship here. In the name of Jesus the Messiah, King of Kings, Lord, that stone cut without hands that one day will become a mighty mountain and throw down all these wicked kingdoms. And we know in His kingdom there will be no injustice. There will be no respecter of persons. There will be no hypocrisy. There will be no corruption. There will be no uh, 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 oppression for the saints. And we look forward to that day. In Jesus' precious name, amen.